So, as it turns out, the green trash can is not recycling. It's for greens, like compost and eggshells. Mm. And the blue one is recycling. And the black one is... Riley is acting so weird. Why is she acting so weird? What do you expect? All the islands are down. Joy would know what to do. That's it. Until she gets back, we just do what Joy would do. Great idea. Anger, fear, disgust. How are we supposed to be happy? Hey, Riley, I've got good news. I found a junior hockey league right here in San Francisco. And get this, tryouts are tomorrow after school. What luck, right? Hockey. Uh-oh, what do we do? Guys, uh, th th this, uh, here, you, you pretend to be joined. Wouldn't it be great to be back out on the ice? Oh, yeah, that sounds fantastic. What was that? That wasn't anything like Joy. Uh, because I'm not Joy? Yeah, no kidding. Did you guys pick up on that? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Sure did. Something's wrong. Should we ask her? Let's probe, but keep it subtle so she doesn't notice. So, how was the first day of school? She's probing us. I'm done. You pretend to be Joy. What? Okay. Um, hmm. It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Oh, very smooth. That was just like Joy. Something is definitely going on. She's never acted like this before. What should we do? We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. Ahem. <clears throat> Uh-oh, she's looking at us. Uh, what did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? <sighs> He's making that stupid face again. I could strangle him right now. Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Riley, oh, you kidding me. For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? Boo, I'll be joy. School was great, all right? Riley, is everything okay? <sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. What is her deal? All right, make a show of force. I don't want to have to put the foot down. No, not the foot. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude, okay? No, 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 no. Stay happy! What is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. You heard that, gentlemen? DEFCON 2. Listen, young lady, I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Come and get it! Yeah, well, well... Here it comes. Prepare the foot. Keys to sector position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. Just shut up! Fire! That's it. Go to your room. Now. Foot is down. The foot is down. Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a disaster. Well, that was a disaster. Hey, that was a clip from the movie Inside Out. It came out about five years ago, about the time that my family and I, we were moving from Minnesota, which the family in the movie's doing. <laughs> uh, but we were moving to Ohio. They were moving to San Francisco. And it's really told through the eyes of the young girl, her name is Riley, of her feelings. And and you saw three of her feelings there in, in that particular scene rolling around inside her head. You saw uh, disgust, fear, and anger. The two that were missing were joy and sadness. And those are the five, really the five lenses through which we see this transition that Riley is trying to make. Her and her family, as I said before, have moved. And as someone who's moved his family cross-country, a few times. Uh, 
picking up your home and moving it somewhere else is very hard because you leave behind many of the things that create that identity of home. You leave behind, you know, in our case, you leave behind your church family or you leave behind some of your blood family. Sometimes you leave behind your job, your best friends, um, the home that you've made a home, whatever that is, whether it be an apartment, a trailer, a house, whatever that is, you leave it behind to go do something else. And the truth is the further away you go, the harder it is because you just can't get back to visit people or connect with people nearly as easily. Now, the modern conveniences of, of Facebook and such can help with some of those things. You can talk to people, you can FaceTime them, you can message them back and forth, but it's, it's not the same as sharing life together. And when you find yourself in a strange situation like that, much like Riley's going through here, your emotions can kind of run the gamut because you're, you're under stress. The truth is, anytime we're under stress, we can feel like our emotions are kind of not in check, like they're, they could go from happiness to sadness to anger to disgust, you know, all over the map, all at once, almost all at once, but from second to second. And it can be really frustrating and really confusing and it can feel like you are sometimes not in control. And the truth is none of us like that. No one likes to not be in control of what they're thinking, especially not when what they're feeling. I think that is partially the way sin operates within us. And sin can often feel like it is battling for control battling for control with the part of us that doesn't want to sin. And, and ultimately, whoever wins the battle is really the question. Who wins the battle for our hearts and our souls? Is it the part of us that wants to follow God or the part of us that wants to, well, frankly, rebel against him? Because that's really what sin is. Sin is, is a choice, oftentimes a choice, to go against what God wants done. Technically, it means to miss the mark, to not hit the target. That's actually what the word sin means. We're in the middle of a series called Game Over. We started last week. We started in the book of James talking about how sins have a tendency to mimic things that are good in our lives. And in doing that, they, they kind of trick us into using our own abilities, our own capacities to pursue the thing that will take us out. We also talked about the fact that, that though this is an in, internal struggle, it's really, really important that we're engaging other people in the body of Christ, um, other believers, in trying to resolve it. Sometimes we need more than just us to fix the problem. We all, James also encouraged us in James chapter 1 to trust God's instincts over our own, to remember that we don't always know as much as we think we do. Sometimes going with our basic instincts can get us in trouble, as it did with the the bugs and stuff that we were talking about last week with the lightning bug that pursues to its own death because it's just following its basic instincts we do the same thing with sin sometimes we also talked about james's call for us to embrace grace the reality that though we do mess up and have messed up in the past what has happened before doesn't necessarily have to define who we are in the future 
this week we're going to kind of go inside the battle, kind of like in this film, they were inside Riley's head and the parents' head. We're going to go inside the battle that kind of goes on with us with sin, which again is similar to the one that happens with our emotions sometimes in times of stress. And we're really going to try to dig into what causes this difficulty, this challenge between the fight that we have between doing what is right, following God, and doing what is wrong or rebelling against him. To do that, we're going to read from the book of Romans chapter 7. We're going to read verses 14 through 25. And as we're we're laying this out, I, I want us to notice something. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And the Apostle Paul follower of God, man of God, guy who plants churches and tells others who Jesus is and champions who Jesus is, helps people draw closer to him, and truthfully, through whom we have most of our understanding of who Jesus is in the New Testament once you get past the Gospels, right? Those four basic stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are written by eyewitnesses or reports from eyewitnesses directly about the life of Christ— Paul is really the primary voice in what happened after Christ ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. But we're going to hear that even Paul, this apostle, the speaker of all things about the Lord, even he struggles with a battle from within. And it is a battle with sin. So if you read with me, I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, it says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is, in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who, who will rescue me from this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. I don't know about you, but reading that passage is kind of challenging because he's really conflicted, right? I do what I want, but I don't do what I want. I don't do what I want, and I hate what I do, and he's kind of all over the map. It sounds conflicted, and I really believe it's it's because it is. It is conflicted. One of the things you need to know about Paul, if you've read the New Testament, it's a pretty easy thing to figure out, I think, is that Paul is a rule follower, Paul very much has an idea based on what he knows about God, and in his case, what the scripture says. And and so he reads that and he thinks, okay, that's how things should go. This is exactly how it should work out. If I do X and I I will get Y, that's just, that's how it works. 
If I put together the equation properly, right, x plus y equals z, this is how this works, I'm in good shape. But he's found out that even in following Christ, even in trying to do good, in following the law, which he states is good, he still struggles to do the right thing. Right before this, at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul has a discussion about marriage and essentially about the vow to be together until someone passes. You know, when you read at weddings, the whole, we'll be together till death do us part. That, that comes from scripture, that commitment that God has set forth in marriage, that once we are together, we should never be blown asunder. And if it was just that simple, right? I think... I hope we all can think that, that marriage is a good thing. It is something that I really think comes as close as you get to your relationship with God. And that is, it is faithful. It is meant to be strong. It is meant to be long lasting. In the case of a marriage, for this lifetime here on this earth, in, in the case of our relationship with God, it is meant to be eternal. It is meant to be loving and giving it is meant to be fruitful. It is meant to, 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 to amount to something that matters. But how often do marriages, even in the Christian realm, how often do they not work out, right? It's not as simple as saying, look, this is the expectation. Because I think when we stand in front of our spouse, at least I hope we do, in front of a pastor and we're, we're exchanging vows and we're making those commitments till death do us part, I, I, I hope at least part of us understands that it's supposed to mean what we say it means, right? We're making the commitment, at least in as much as we can, in the moment. And yet those marriages often, frankly, fall apart. It doesn't work out a certain way or the godly way just because it's written that way or even because we commit to following it that way. And so Paul is using this analogy of marriage. And in the section we just read, he's realizing something about himself and about all of us in our walk with God, even for rule followers. And I realize not every one of us is a rule follower. I'm not a rule follower. I have issues with rules. That's a topic for another day, okay? But the fact that God has set an expectation is not in and of itself enough of a reason for us to simply meet that expectation. In verse 17, Paul is, beginning of our scripture, Paul is recognizing something. He's recognizing a futility. In fact, verses 14 through 17, he's recognizing this futility of trying to follow the law to a T and expecting it to work. He starts off by saying the law is spiritual. It's, what he's trying to say is there is it is that is, it is God-given. It has value. It is in and of itself inherently good. And when he's talking about the law here, he's not necessarily talking about the laws that our, our government writes. He's talking about the law of God in particular. He's talking about the Bible. And he's talking about the book of Leviticus, that one with all these different thoughts and ideas and regulations and laws and expectations that are written through here that the people of God are intended to follow. Those equations of do X and Y and the result is Z and that's how that works. And if it doesn't, the math doesn't add up, this is how you respond and that makes it right. It's kind of this very clean, clear cut, easy, just do this and it works. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's not the case. 
You know, they go through cycle after cycle after cycle of it not working the way they had intended. But that doesn't mean the law in and of itself, God's expectations in and of themselves, are bad. In fact, they're not. God laid them out for the good of his people. I think a modern example for us are, are traffic laws. Um, you know, we have a series, a set of traffic laws in this country around how fast we can drive or not drive, when we should stop, when we should signal, when we should do whatever. Um, and, and the goal of those traffic laws is good. The goal is to keep us all safe. The truth is sometimes we violate those laws by accident. Maybe we aren't paying as close attention as we should and we run a stop sign or we make a turn and we forget to signal or we develop a habit of not signaling before we turn. But sometimes we break laws intentionally, even though they're good, because I don't think you could begin to argue for a second that if everyone, literally everyone, followed every single law to a T, never made a mistake out of ignorance, never made a mistake on purpose, if we all went exactly the speed limit, if we all signaled every time and gave the proper distance before we signaled, if none of us ever made a choice out of desperation or were just in a hurry to drive too fast or make a turn we shouldn't have run or run a stop sign or whatever it is that we do, because we do, me too, make choices to break traffic laws. But if none of us ever did, I don't think any of us could argue the roads wouldn't be safer, right? They would. The fact is they, they would be safer. And yet we choose to break them anyways. That's a bit how the law of God worked for God's people. He set expectations. He said, if everybody would just do this, we'd be fine. And the truth is, we would have been, right? Everyone, if we all followed all of God's rules to a T, then our lives would be much, 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 much better. And we would be pleasing God with every move we make, every step we take. But the truth is, just saying it's not enough. Just saying it's not enough. At our core, we like to believe that we can kind of rewrite some of those laws. Every time we choose to speed, we rewrite a law, right? And we do the same thing with God's rules. Paul, though, makes this really interesting connection. He says, when I do that, when I, when I violate the law, even though it's good, when I violate it, I'm sold as a slave to sin. Now, that, that word, slave, it's an interesting word. We translate it when we're talking about, even translate Bible translators, when they're translating it to talk about bad things, like sin, they use that word. They will say the word slave to sin because it's a bad word with a word that we don't really ever want to hear with our name in the same sentence, right? Nobody wants to hear Rob the slave. I, I do not. I'm just telling you, I don't. And I'm betting most no one else does either. But the truth is, oftentimes Paul refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament, as do other New Testament writers. They refer to themselves as a slave to Jesus Christ. It's interesting, sometimes we translate that as servant or a follower, but the Greek word is the same. It's still slave, and it means exactly that. And so Paul says, look, 
Though the law is holy, right? And I should be following it. If I'm following God and I'm one of his people and I am saved by Jesus Christ, I am his slave. I should be doing exactly what he wants me to do. And I shouldn't have a choice, but I do. And I mess up. I mess up. What Paul's really highlighting here is, again, this futility. This idea, this problem that we have is that though the law is holy, right? It is an external force rather than an internal one. It simply highlights or helps us uh, recognize how we might have messed up. It doesn't actually encourage us necessarily to do the right things, at least not by itself. Now, look, if uh, Bob Goff tells a story in, in his book, Love Does, he tells a story about if every time you went over the speed limit, you had a little machine on your dashboard that would click out a speeding ticket, right? If you did that every time, if that happened every time you sped, chances are you or I, if I had one too, we probably would stop speeding, right? Because there would be an immediate penalty there. But because that doesn't happen, because it is not, there is not a penalty every time we mess up or every time we break the law, at least not a visible, obvious, immediate penalty. It's not, that external force is not enough to make us make the right decisions, at least not in and of itself, because the battle is inside. The battle is inside. The other day I was out walking my dog. And uh, in fact, just a couple days ago, we are, I was out walking the dog and we saw the dog, we saw a rabbit go shooting out of a field, out from under a pine tree in the church lot and run across the street into the cornfield. And the dog just takes off. And I, I yelled at her. I said, Ginger, no. And I got to tell you, totally surprised. She came to a dead halt. She came to a dead halt. She stopped completely. But she didn't just turn around and run back to me. She stopped. And then she would look over at the cornfield and then look back at me and then look at the cornfield and look back at me. And she's obeying what I'm asking her to do, but she's still got some questions going on. <laughs> That's, that internal struggle is happening right in, right before me, right in front of me. I'm watching my dog battle with, do I do what, what he's asking me to do or do I chase the rabbit? Internal battle. That battle, as Paul goes through this section, he begins to expand on that battle. He, he begins to talk about, basically, he doesn't use this word, but it, it reflects the Jewish concept of something called Yetzirim, and I hope I'm getting that right because it's ancient Hebrew, and uh, the truth is there were no vowels in ancient Hebrew, so the pronunciations, we're guessing. So if you're ever reading the Old Testament and you're reading a list of names and you're not sure how to pronounce them, do your best. You're probably as accurate as anybody else's. Mental note. But he's, he's explaining this concept of Yetzirim, this idea that there are essentially two natures within each of us. There is a good nature and a bad nature. And that's something that human beings have felt in almost every society since the beginning, right? You've heard of yin and yang, likely, right? The circle with the white and the black and the little of each in between. 
this yin-yang symbol. It's the idea that there are two struggling forces. The Yitzharim would be that there are two struggling forces within us. There is the, 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 the God portion of who we are because God breathed life into each and every one of us. There is, I really believe, a piece of who he is within us or we would not be alive. And yet there is also this piece that is very human, very broken and very fallen. Uh, and, and Paul would, in his text here, calls it the flesh, this thing that you're fighting against. It is both the good and the bad at battle, battling within. Paul also, and it's not quite as obvious unless we do some digging in, in, in the original language, Paul emphasizes here what the real problem is, where the real conflict is occurring between those of us who want to do the good that God wants us to do and yet choosing to not to. We're fighting, we're making, allowing ourselves to be made a slave of sin instead of a slave of Jesus. We are, want to do good, but we don't. And, and the word he emphasizes is ego. Um, and no, not the toaster pastry, because I know a bunch of you were just thinking, let go my ego. As soon as I said ego, let go my ego. It's not what it's about. But by the way, kudos to the people who developed that slogan. Well done. They did that 40 years ago and they're still selling them things like crazy. And quite frankly, they're just not that good. Well done slogan people. It's an earworm. It's stuck with you. <laughs> but that word ego, we actually pronounce now as ego. Ego, I, me, or mine. He says this challenge that we have, the thing that keeps us from being a slave to Christ and instead becoming a slave to sin or, or losing the battle for our hearts and souls. As sometimes we're our own worst enemy because our greatest challenge is our own ego. The truth is the, that, that kind of self-seeking tendency is frankly the reason that I see marriages fall apart when they do, right? The truth is, if God is at the center of our marriage, and also the truth is, if we are, both parties are centered on God, and both parties are looking out for the other one, I don't know that I've ever seen a marriage that had those things lined up fall apart. They do fall apart where one party decides, this is about me. I'm not getting what I want. And then the marriage disintegrates. That kind of self-seeking tendency that I'm going to get mine, I'm going to protect myself, I'm going to make sure I get taken care of first and foremost and get what I want, that ego. It's what really tears us away from God and robs us of the relationship we're supposed to have with him. Because we're supposed to find our identity not in the one we construct for ourselves, but in the one he constructs for us. It really is a matter of giving over who we are to him. That ego gets in the way when you're trying to resolve any relationship, if you're trying to resolve a marriage relationship or you're trying to resolve our relationship with God, our ego is the thing that keeps us from doing what we need to do to reconnect. It's our ego that keeps us from apologizing. 
It's our ego that keeps us from seeing the error of our own ways. Our ego is so strong that it can actually convince us that we're all good when the fact is we're not. Jesus talks about it when he speaks of ocular plankitis. He talks about the notion of taking the plank out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your other in, in your brother's eye. You're missing the thing that you've got going on. Your ego won't let you see it. You're moving right past it. James, back in the book of James, in James chapter one, he says, it's like somebody who looks at themselves in the mirror and then forgets what they look like, right? There's, it's an unreal perception of who we are and what we are about. It's because we're protecting our ego. We don't want to see ourselves for who we are when the fact is that's the beginning of change. That's the beginning of recognizing that we aren't all we think we are sometimes. And it's really God who is perfection. It's God who is love. And it's God who should define our identity instead of ourselves. So in the final section of this, Paul really gets into the opponents in this war, Christ and sin. It's about whether or not we are giving our will completely and totally over to Jesus or if we're giving it into sin, driven by our own egos, protected by our own egos. And he says something really, really telling. In verse 21 of our text today, he says, so I discovered this law. This is in the midst of while he's trying to figure out why he wants to do some things and ends up doing other things. He says, I've discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is still, he doesn't say this, but still present within me. It's there anyways. Proverbs 16, 2 says it this way. It says, all a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs motives. The truth is, unless we stop and pause and ask ourselves what our real motivations are, are our motivations in line with what God is calling us to be? The truth is we will lean into trusting our own motivations and we will assume that whatever we're doing in the moment, whatever we feel like doing in the moment is the right thing to be doing. We overlook sin in our own lives. We overlook those things because Frankly, we want to avoid sadness and pain. Another aspect of the plot of the Inside Out movie we saw at the beginning of this is that joy is the, the lead emotion here. And joy really can't tolerate sadness or fear or any of the negative emotions that pull Riley down. And so she ignores them. She ignores them. And part of going through the movie is discovering at the end that those other emotions really do matter. Well, we let our ego do the same thing. We ignore those other things that are broken, that are wrong, that are dragging us away from God. And because we try to hold on to, to being happy all the time, we don't want to be sad. And so we don't deal with things that might make us sad. We just pretend like they are going to just not be an issue or they're not going to go away. And so our motivation is to stay happy. Our motivation is to stay happy no matter what. The second thing Paul sees here and what to do, how to respond to this war after checking his motivations as we should check ours is to get used to the idea that our first inclination 
might be wrong. Our first inclination, the first emotional response we have or the first desire we have to do something might be off base. It might be incorrect. And Paul comes to this realization in verse 24 of today's text. He says, what a wretched man am I. He's recognizing that his motivations aren't always pure. He's recognizing that the sin within him is eating him up. The negative part of his yetzerim, his ego, all the different things we're talking about are messing with him. And that if he just leans into that feeling first, that first inclination of a feeling or that first desire to pursue happiness above all other things, he gets himself in trouble. The truth is we live in a culture where I just want to be happy seems to be the mantra. And yet that seems to be one of the most elusive things for people in our society to find is true happiness, true joy. We spend an awful lot of time trying to make ourselves happy and yet never finding it. Because our inclination is to lean first into happiness instead of to lean first into holiness and to first trying to lean into what God has for us, what his will is, and recognizing that we will find the happiness we so desperately seek and want in that rather than trying to find it ourselves. The third thing that Paul notes, and it's a repeat of last week, and I think it's something, especially as we talk about sin, that we've got to repeat often, and that's to embrace grace. He says in verse 24, in the second half of verse 24 of our text today, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then in verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. With my mind and myself, I am serving the law of God with my flesh, the law of sin. He recognizes this journey that we're all on with Jesus is not about being perfect. You're gonna make mistakes. But if you have Christ, if you've come to trust him with your future, if you've come to try, try to trust him, to form your identity, if you've done those things, then he is still with you. And it's not about being perfect. It's about being transformed. We all begin in a different place. And the truth is our transformation to, to coming to know and live as Christ would have us live and be as Christ-like as we can be, that really doesn't end until we pass on to the next life. Though the scripture doesn't say it, I'm inclined to believe we continue learning. And maybe I just think that because uh, it seems like such a daunting task at times, right? To live as Christ would have us live, to be motivated by the things that motivate Jesus and to always capture every thought and action and to be as Christ-like as possible. He continues with this in Romans chapter 8, the very next set of verses, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, biblical chapters sometimes drive me crazy. You know, those aren't in the original Bible. Those are just, somebody thought it was a good place to make a stop. And in most cases, it is. But sometimes I'm left going, why here? <laughs> why here? And, and this is just, this is one of those places. He goes on to say in chapter 8, he says, therefore... Right? concluding what he's been talking about in this discussion. Therefore, there is now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. It is when we become slaves of Christ, chasing him, seeking transformation in him, seeking the identity that he has laid out for us, motivated by what he's motivated by and setting aside those things that would draw us away from him. That is when we truly become free. Because he says in verse three, he says, for what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, right? The law is a good thing. We're just not always good at following it. God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. He sent his son, his perfect, beautiful son who was without sin and let sin bombard him and ultimately to pay the price not for his own sins because he made it through this life miraculously well not miraculously he's god he made it through this life without sinning but he died for hours he died for hours as you leave here today i pray that you will embrace the the grace that jesus christ has offered you the opportunity to come to know him, to pursue him, and to be loved by him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor. May he give you peace. God bless.